that this is the last episode of Future Facing Farms. It's, but it's been such a cool experience to visit farms across Minnesota and learn about what motivates different producers. They all shared a real commitment to the land and a passion to care for it. I, I guess all good things, you know, they say it must come to an end, but we know that at least the work that the farmers are doing is going on. <laughs> That's right. Um, so we've been to small farms and large ones. We've been on tours and had long conversations about conservation. Yes, and we've learned. We've learned about climate change. We've learned about solutions, carbon markets, cover crops, carbon sequestration, biochar, and we've seen some different philosophies along the way. Yeah, and listeners, if you're just joining us, uh, look back at our previous five episodes for some important definitions and context. Also, be sure to check out sctimes.com for a series of stories on natural climate solutions, along with videos and photos. Uh, this is all thanks to the MIT Environmental Solutions Journalism Fellowship, which sponsored my reporting. And also many thanks to the St. Cloud Times, where Sarah and I work as reporters. Yes, so I'm Sarah Kocher here with Nora Hurdle. And Nora, I want you to tell me who we're meeting in this sixth and final episode of Future Facing Farms. I'm going to introduce you to two cousins on a large farm near St. Cloud, Minnesota, Daniel and Tyler Jansky. They are both new dads, which I think is relevant because they talk about thinking about the next generation. Daniel's wife was pregnant when we visited in mid-August and has since had their baby. And Tyler's daughter was eight months old when we met. Daniel's nephew was also around during the visit, showing off his kitten. Uh, very, very cute combination there. Daniel and Tyler are the fourth generation on the land there. It's called Jansky Farms, and they farm 4,000 acres. They have cut back on their tilling, uh, they graze livestock on some of their fields, and they keep um, milking cows, finishing steers, and chickens as well. It was Daniel's brother who first suggested that they try cover crops on a patch of 45 acres, and Daniel and Tyler have really run with it in the last four years. They have read about it and connected with other farmers online. Uh, they haven't been directly paid to do these practices, but they've seen a whole host of benefits sounds like they've got a lot going on. They do. It's it's a big piece of land. The family is all involved still. It was a cool place to visit. We spent a couple hours there. And I think it was the favorite farm of uh, photographer Dave Schwartz. So, I mean, he had a good time on all these visits too. But he, yeah, he enjoyed um, meeting meeting the kitten. And we, we got to walk between the rows of corn on this, on this one, because they had planted cover crops between the rows of corn. One of the benefits that Tyler and Daniel have seen is that the co cover crops have been darn pretty, as Tyler pointed out in this next excerpt. And this is kind of a long clip, but you get a chance to hear Daniel and Tyler kind of talk back and forth about what they've seen and what they really appreciate about cover crops. Daniel is the first one to speak here. I think it saves labor. When we were doing full tillage, I think it took just as much time, if not more time in a year, than it does to go out there and cover crop. It's not only the time, I mean, it's the time, labor, 
and fuel savings. I mean, we're we're burning we burn two less tankers of fuel by switching from tillage to cover crops. So you, okay. I mean, you start. And that's one thing too, carbon. The emissions yeah. and stuff like fuel that, and yeah. not not only that, but even the cost of the fuel nowadays. And the horsepower it takes for us to grow an acre is much yes. lower than it used to be. Yeah, and are you saving money on pesticides and? So that's yeah. yeah. When we before we had a crop rotation, pesticides were very heavily used because corn on corn, yeah, you have to put a pesticide in the ground to prevent bad bugs from taking your corn. Well, when you present a crop rotation or when you do something differently, and you, you know, your ecosystem functions by diversity. Mm-hmm. So when you have, for instance, the same crop monoculture year after year after year they catch on to that and then pretty soon yeah you have a crop failure or you have an issue the amount of chemical used starts to increase and we would we would like to see it decrease not only as a as a operation standpoint as far as the, the cost of doing it but the benefits you see by not using those things yeah. so I've yeah what else have you seen kind of in the broader ecosystem around since you started making changes well one thing i've i've never really understood what mycorrhizae fungi is that's in the soil that's in the soil yeah. the fungus that breaks the everything down into organic matter that's one thing i never really noticed and you when you dig in a shovel before you wouldn't have seen something like that but you can see it you can see it now when yeah. there's growing roots in the ground okay you can see it at work all right we do see a an abundance of wildlife yeah we, that's do we, do we see more deer pheasants turkey we feel like we see a lot more of that with the presentation like in the winter that's one thing too it's like when you do full tillage there's nothing green what are these animals feeding on yeah and that's where it comes down to too you're working with nature not just by yourself or not just your operation but they they as a whole too are bringing benefit to your soil and not only that if i can give them something green to eat maybe and then they're pooping in our field and yeah. fertilizing it for us so yeah. it, it uh that and we just like seeing deer and stuff yeah. like that it's cool to see uh, yeah that's definitely for me too it's like when you drive by in the spring and there's eight ten deer or 20 turkeys or whatever you, you just see the result that yeah i put something there and that animal has recognized and they eat it and mm-hmm. it's it seems like respect for one another i guess it's kind of cool yeah and it's darn pretty we get those <laughs> <laughs> we had a field down here we planted with sunflowers and we grazed it off and the cows wouldn't touch the sunflowers and they actually started turning yellow and everything and then as soon as it started freezing and then they ate the sunflowers but you for a while there the whole field was yellow and you can yeah. see the cows and the sunflowers and everything i I, I that's really cool to me i love seeing that was that was last fall last yeah. fall okay. yep how about the the financials of it has what has changed in so terms of like profit margin we haven't seen a whole lot of difference in profit margin it's the, about the same the as roi percentage. is pretty similar what we have seen is with the cover crops like we have canning peas that we plant in may and then we pull them off in july and we have we can plant a diverse cover on it and then graze beef cows on it we get the calf out of the beef cow so you're kind of double cropping in a way and being in this northern climate like that to be able to double crop i feel there's a huge benefit to that 
Is that that you have that diversity so you have less risk or you're spread out your risk? Yep, or? spread out okay. risk, yes. And, and you're doing more, we're doing more with one acre today on that acre of peas than they did 20 years ago. And by grazing and growing the cover crop on it, by properly grazing and not overgrazing it, we feel like we're building soil and organic matter all in one. Okay. So we're benefiting the soil all while making it more efficient. And another thing I guess too is when we were on full tillage, a year like this year would have been very expensive. I think we could both agree. Oh, that, that would have been terribly expensive. We would have been changing plow shovels every day. And because basic, of the drought? Because it's so, when it's dry, yep, the, the steel gets more abrasive. Yeah. Okay. Not to mention the parts that we'd be buying because everything pulls hard when it's just dry. It's interesting to hear him talk about sort of the economies of it because, you know, we think about the environmental impact that we've been hearing of these cover crop strategies. So it's interesting to hear him talk because, I mean, at a basic level, you kind of think like, okay, more crop equals more labor, right? But he, what he's saying is when we've implemented these cover crops, crop strategies, actually the economies of it mean that we have, you know, less tilling or different type of tilling actually means less labor and, you know, fewer costs on pesticide. And to hear him talk about that is really interesting, sort of how it impacts them in terms of, yeah, the economies of farming. But then it's also interesting to hear him say later, to hear them say later that they don't think that it's had a huge financial impact on them to make this switch to cover crops. You know, some of those ideas have come up in different ways in different interviews with other farmers. Like when when we went to Dream of Wild Health, the farm manager there talks about how, you know, we don't need to do all these inputs because we just need to help the soil do it on its own. You know, on the other end of the spectrum, and this was not an episode of the podcast, but I talked to um, a farmer from Arkansas who is vice president of the American Soybean Association. Okay. And he is in a study right now, so it's early mm. in the study, but he seemed a little skeptical that having cover crops would actually pay for themselves. Um, yeah, I mean, but talking with folks around Minnesota, it seemed from the folks I talked to, there's a lot of intrinsic benefits and also that the finances even even themselves out. And then there's like the feel good aspect of it that the people I talk to experience that they really enjoy seeing biodiversity on their land. It's the darn pretty factor. Yeah. Yeah. So I asked them if they would want to be part of a carbon market program, and they didn't seem interested in that incentive. So remind me real quick, Nora, what sort of things count in a carbon market, what those incentives, what we're incentivizing? Yeah, so the the pilot program that I featured in a story and that we, we visited some of those farms in the pilot project earlier, their soil carbon was measured early and then they started using cover crops for the first time and some of those folks did have some experience with other practices associated with building carbon in the soil or sequestering carbon in the soil like no-till or limiting your tilling practices or grazing livestock directly in a field Um, those are kind of some of the ingredients that are believed 
to build soil carbon. And the testing or the data is still kind of in development. That's kind of what everyone's betting on. And they're taking soil samples at different stages in the process, but they're also relying on some models where they, you know, they're assuming that to some extent cover crops will indeed increase the amount of soil or organic carbon. So hypothetically, the work that the Jansky's farm is already doing with cover crops could fit into a carbon market program if they wanted it to. Yeah, and they have done some soil testing, carbon testing, and seen some increase. And then also anecdotally, you know, they've seen a lot more going on in a handful of soil than they would have seen five years ago before they changed their practices. Gotcha. Not that we wouldn't welcome something like that, but we feel like it'd be better used to get the young, like, not that we're not the young maybe, generation, maybe but not. Like new young farmers and beginning farmers, give them instead of incentives to do that. Instead of incentive, I think they'd be better off with research, and that's becoming more and more popular among amongst farmers and Facebook. It's a great network; people can share the results, okay. and I think that's that's a positive change for people that are curious and they they join these these Facebook pages and they they're curious and they see, well, this person tried this. And they had great results. I can see it. They showed me pictures. They they had um, their results, the return on investment, that kind of stuff, on what they've done in a, in a practice or something they've tried. Mm-hmm. And that's what I think is going to get more farmers okay. intrigued than some, I guess, would be drawn by the, the incentive to do it. But I feel like more people want to know from a a return on investment standpoint, how they're going to make money doing things differently than they've done for three, four, five generations. The Nature Conservancy funded some research. Counties with higher cover crop rates were, were higher there in part because of word of mouth. So neighbors sharing their experiences and, and then that kind of being a little contagious you know the neighbor sees it works for someone else and gives it a try yeah Yeah, i mean colloquially that that makes sense you know if your friend goes to a really good restaurant and they tell you gosh i had such a great time at this restaurant wouldn't you want to go check it out too you know what i mean it's yeah it it makes a lot of sense so it sounds like then if we're interested in implementing cover crops more widely it sounds like those early adopters are really critical in getting the ball rolling for other people Right. And then having an open channel of communication. Yeah. Yeah. There's so much more that I want to share about the Jansky Farms. Like each fall after harvest, Daniel looks forward to making his cover crop plan for the next year. He also planted a pollinator strip that's been used by a beekeeper to produce some honey. It was just really cool to learn about how he has followed his curiosity on, you know, a few different tracks. This has been a great journey for us. We enjoy it. Our family loves to farm. We've always loved to farm. I don't know what it is, but just something about it. And I guess the more and more I learn about cover crops is I hope that I leave this land better than I found it. And I hope that someday maybe the next generation can do the same and leave the land better than they found it and not erode the soil and leave something behind that the next generation can prosper from and use and not degrade something to the point where we can't 
sell this to the next generation or gift it to the next generation. I love hearing how he looks at it as like a a learning experience. I mean, I, it makes a ton of sense in retrospect, but it's great to think about sort of like his farm being a big like personal science experiment. Um, I think that would take, I don't know, sometimes it's scary to try new things, not to, you know, sometimes it's scary to try new things, especially when it's your livelihood. Um, so it's really, it's cool to hear him talk about how he's sort of taking some of those, um, I don't know, risks, if you will, to try something. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, for sure there's risk. And I think, you know, this is, this is a, a business for people and, and it's, yeah. it's their, um, it's their livelihood. So not only do you, you don't, you don't want to mess it up because you can't afford to, but you don't want to mess it up because, you know, you're trying to take care of the land and to do something really out of left field is, is scary. It's balancing, you know, the, the risk reward. I think it probably takes a little bravery. So Oh yeah, yeah, and I and I think that not everyone really does have that kind of wiggle room that Tyler and Daniel have. You know, it's a family business, so they they have support from older generations in the family, and and I don't think it's the same in every family. You know, you might have some disagreement. It's not just generation specific, but you do have to get kind of everyone on board in the yeah. family if it's a family business. Yeah. Every farm is different in terms of who's running it, but also in terms of like the physical aspects of it. I mean, what you grow, you know, what your soil is like, all of those, what you're set up for, all of those things too. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so many, so many factors to consider. It's why you can't just force a mass change on the whole farming right. system. Right. This has been a delight, Sarah. Thank you for learning from and visiting all these farms with me. Yes, thank you so much for having me, Nora. It's been fabulous. And thank you to our listeners. We hope that you enjoyed this as much as we did. If you're hungry for more, do visit sctimes.com for stories, photos, videos about the series. And thank you to St. Cloud Times and the MIT Environmental Solutions Journalism Fellowship for making this possible. Take care, everybody.